and welcome to the Build Podcast, where today my special guest is the real deal, a former Met police officer who liaised with the makers of the Bill as they filmed on his beat. His own story is absolutely fascinating, so this is the first part of the three-part special. I am very pleased to introduce you to Mr. Kevin Holland. Enjoy. I do a massive amount on social media, so when I come across you quite a few months back and I start looking at the odd clip, and then I, I got onto UK TV, and then I was watching, I, I'm always going to refer to them as Reg Hollis, because so, I don't know the actors' names. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't like her when she was a sergeant. She was better as a PC. Yeah. Anyway, um, I started watching them again, and it brought back all of those memories. So when we started this little conversation, and every now and again I'll chip in on the Twitter feed, because it's like it invokes so many memories of both the reasons why a lot of people my age at that time become police officers, but also of our working practices as well. I'd love to know about your background and what led you to, to joining the force and where, where the interest first came from. It was really simple for me. My, my, my dad was a policeman in the Navy. He, he'd done 23 years in the Royal Navy um, and he was in the regulating branch. In 1982, after the Falklands, I was about 16, 17, I applied to join the Marines. And when we have um, a conflict, they always raise the attainment level because they can afford just to take the best because more people want to join. So if I didn't make the grade at that age, so I was a bit disappointed, but I stuck with, you know, I've all, I was always around queen and country. I was always around the crown. My father, when he left the Navy, he worked in parliament. The, the guys with the big gold chains when the black rod comes through. Oh, wow. My, my dad, 20, 23 years, he worked in parliament. So I used to, to have sleepovers in parliament. I was surrounded by... The crown, I was surrounded by just government. I was, I, you don't understand it when you're a kid. You're just, you're always there. If there was a troop of the colour, we'd be on the front row. It, so I naturally evolved to queen and country. So I joined the police. <laughs> There's lots of reasons why. But that was in 1988. Now, the bill had been going for, what, five years then? Four absolutely, years? Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I was 21 when I joined. So it was, I was 16, 17 when the bill started. Just left school. And I was working in a factory. I'd done a bit of Club 18 to 32 repping. But there was no career path. I had a great life. I had money in the pocket. I, you know, car and girlfriend. And, but I didn't have a career path. So I said to my dad, because he lived in London during the week in Parliament, in, in the building next door to Parliament, I said, Dad, pop along to Scotland Yard. He says, what for? I said, my girlfriend thinks I'd look good in uniform. And I think she's right. Right, so he says, that's the reason you want to join the police. I says, yeah. So, so, so I joined the police, and I was really lucky. I'd done a, a year uh, repping for Club 18 to 31st, um, and then I joined the police in the September 1988. And that was um, Lockerbie um, happened at that time. So instant high-impact events you start thinking about differently. A few years previously, we'd had Yvonne Fletcher. Yeah. Yeah, so that one was significant. And watching the miners' strike, yeah, without getting into the politics, I mean, as it happens, we needed to end coal, you know, so, you know, we needed to do that. But the way it was done without the support, but the police were the front line and, and, and the police were seen as the enemy. And these were the things that influenced me to join the police because I saw these things going on. I used to look on the TV. I know it's all cut and edited to tell a story for the political flavour, but I look at it and I go, no, that's wrong. 
or that's wrong or that was wrong. And it makes you feel more stand up. And I thought, well, being a policeman would allow me to do this right and wrong thing rather than just have an opinion on it, actually contribute. So I joined the police and I was really lucky. I went to um, Vine Street Police Station, which is the, the second oldest police station in the world um, at the time. Very, very small area, very small. Two thirds of a square mile was the beat. And it covered half of Mayfair, the southern half of Mayfair, the southern half of Soho and St. James's. And that was it. And I lived and I lived, I lived just off of Wardour Street in Broadwick Street in Soho in the police section house. So there was about 200 of us, all police officers, with a single room, a bar and a restaurant downstairs, living in Soho at 21, 22 years of age. Wow. <laughs> Ten, £10 a month rent it used to cost us. Wow. In 1989. To live in Soho. I don't know if you know Soho at all, but where yeah. um, the, the, the Ivy is now, yeah. in Soho, is the building directly opposite there, on the corner of Berwick Street Market. Fantastic. So that's where I lived as a 21-year-old when I first joined the police. So I literally lived, and I worked 400 yards away at Vine Street Police Station. So it was very, very different from the environment that we saw ourselves in the bill. But as soon as I got to relief, there was a Reg Hollis, there was a Jim Carver, there was a June Ackland, and all the plonks, I'm allowed to say that, all the WPCs, they all had a thing for Matthew Boyden. Oh, really? Right. Every single WPC. They liked that strong. He, he was like, it'd be TSG. He could be a good inspector. I'd like him to be my sector sergeant. So <laughs> he, he was just one of those lads. Yeah. And the character who played him was at, he got him down to a T. He was a little bit confident, a little bit cocky, but straight down the line, son. Do you know? Yeah. He, he played it really, really well. And he could see those characters. It was real life. It was like they were just another station. And, and when I went home, they were on duty because I saw them on TV. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, and I think if you spoke to police officers, and I know the bill have had some amazing former police officers as advisors over the years, uh, you know, help with the scripts and screens and storylines, and to help with the, 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 the change of legislation, policies and procedures, and the way that we deal with police officers deal with things on the street. And that was all reflected. But if you spoke to police officers, like you speak, ex-police officers, like you speak to me, they will tell you the same. Looking at the bill as a TV programme was exactly the same as what it was in the canteens, in the police station, in the locker room. It, it worked. It worked. And it worked. I think it was a great recruitment drive myself. So that, was, so that was my background, moving into London, and then, um, yeah, join the police, and you do what everyone does. You do your two years probation, uh, and, and you're, you're on the streets. You never get into an area car until your last week of your probation, where you get to be the, yeah, you don't get to drive cars or vans while you're on probation. Not in those days. It was all on foot. 18 of us would, would turn up um, for parade, and you'd stand there with your, your, your appointments, and the inspector would make sure you got your three instant report books, your three process books, your three parking tickets, your truncheon, your handcuffs, your whistle. It goes, you know, every single person would be inspected, the proper parade. And then they'd read out the appointments. Oh, you, you, there's a royalty visit to here. Um, Princess Diana is going to be there at 10 o'clock. Um, uh, you've got a, a, the film is going to be starting as a premiere at eight o'clock and Sly is going to be there. So on four of you. So, but we was in the West End. The, the whole of our duty wasn't normal policing. It was around celebrity and royalty. All we did, when we, we stood on the front doors, we, 
Yeah, we chased burglars, we caught robbers and drug dealers, and, but it, it wasn't like on the estates and residential areas. It was Piccadilly Circus, it was Leicester Square. It w and then you had all of the royalty and the, the glitz that went with it. So we were really insulated from real policing, but it was such a joy to, to join the police in that environment. It, it, was a, it was a wonderful time as well, the late 80s, early 90s, apart from the old IRA. They, they used to drop litter bombs, uh, bombs in, in litter bins. And there was one occasion, it's all, it's all, if you look on Wikipedia for 1991, 1992, London bombing campaign, you'll see all the different bombs. And it was all around the West End. They blew us up out of our bed in our section house. They put a, yeah, in fact, they got it wrong because they actually blew up the training centre around the corner in Big Street. They thought that was the section house and we were 150 yards away. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, that was the bomb in, in Bridal Lane. They'd done another one, a whole series of them of a night duty, but they were watching us. And on about the third or fourth one, they put this bomb in, they put a secondary device in on our RVP, our rendezvous point. So where we mustered to, to, to form a control point to, to manage the situation. They'd actually been watching how we operated three or four weeks previously, and they put a second bomb at the point where they knew our, our VP was going to be. Bloody hell. So it, it was a bit tentative. You didn't know whether you were going to get home <laughs> of a night time. But you're young, you're single. It's, yeah, we've done that, didn't we? Have a beer. And, that you'd, you'd be in a pub and would, next thing you know, George Best would be sitting next year or you'd have a film star. And the owner would say, I oh, don't mind, now that's our local police. And all of a sudden, oh, brilliant. So we all, you become friends with everybody as a police in central London. You, 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 your neighbours were film stars and royalty. It was like, it was a really unusual life um, for the first five years. It, it, and it totally blinded me to what real policing was about. Right. <laughs> Because I, I, I got married. Um, I got married to someone in the job um, who's, she was um, a, a manager of a canteen, police canteen. So I got married there. Um, she, her sister was a police officer and her brother-in-law was a police officer. So it was a whole job family then. And I moved. Um, I moved to South East London and I went down to a police station called Carter Street. Uh, and Carter Street was one of those uh, where, you know, two o'clock in the morning when all the pubs are kicking out in the old Kent Road, all the police vans would line up in the middle and you'd have a police van from Deptford, from Carter Street, from Southwark, from Rotherhithe, from Tower Bridge, all the different police stations, because that's where all the beats joined, the, the divisions merge and all the pars and clubs were. And if you nick someone for fighting, they go, where are you taking me, mate? Not Carter Street. Not Car they didn't want to go to Carter Street. There's some fables some stories and experiences that I never witnessed that apparently happened at Carter Street and and people didn't like going to Carter Street and it was the image of that area of of southeast London and there were there's a real not a fit it was almost a fear of the police there was a lot of respect it was a good old hard working class area but there seemed to be this this inbuilt barrier and I, I didn't know what it was until I moved into a residential area. It might be everywhere. It might not just be in that area. I soon got tired of driving around in a car and I wanted to get back out on feet on my foot. So I ended up, and this is the point of this bit narrative, I ended up volunteering to work on the Aylesbury estate in Walworth, South East London, which at the time was Europe's most densely populated housing estate with a crime rate to match. And I thought, I'd had a couple of life experiences where these things you get in, in the police you, you when you were a kid and you're growing up 
if you do well in a team, you get a trophy yeah. or a medal. The sort of people I am, I was when you do something well, you get a bit of paper. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so when I was a kid, I used to get badges to stick on the arm to show me dad. Yeah. And then as you grow up, you get bits of paper. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, no medals, no trophies, just bits of paper. So I, I, when you're a police officer, you get to do things like fighting with the stabby man and things like that. Or, you know, there's some, you deal with some real horrible stuff. And I decided that I wanted to be more of a community officer. Excuse me. And a, and a bloody good one you are, because I've seen the clips <laughs> yeah, on YouTube, man. Right? The respect is still there from people just, yeah. and from me. I mean, you're you amazing. What you did, my respect to you, sincerely, because... Well, I appreciate that. But it's it's still hard up here. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I can imagine. I, I can only imagine. When I just decided to go community policing, there was reasons for it, and um, very very soon I learned very quickly about how grapevines work, how people communicate. And I'll give you an example. And this, this is when I took on this beat, a seven beat in Walworth. It was um, there was a time when it was in the early mid nineties when knife crime was going through the roof, lots of robberies in those days, nobody had mobile phones. So it was easier for the police because we were a very well connected gang. We were the biggest gang in London. We could speak to each other, you know, all of a sudden it's changed. But anyway, I got onto this beat and it, it, it was hostile. It was a very hostile area um, for policing. Um, it's not a no go zone, but the sun called it the estate from hell. Um, and I thought, I fancy a challenge, I'll turn that around. So I, I went to this uh, meeting and they were all bleating and going on about, you know, dog shit on the pavement and, and, and robberies and, and all the stuff that everyone's going to moan about for a police officer, and quite rightly for the police officer to do something. But it was the same, it was just more of the same that I've always heard. So it wasn't new. And I turned around just to shut them all up. I said, look, I'm going to be here because one woman, she says, oh, here we go. Another one out of the bloody box. He'll be here for six months. And I says... I'll tell you what I'll do. You've got about 250 crimes a month on this estate at the moment, 30 knife point robberies, 20, 30 burglaries, 50 car crime. I said, I'll stay here until I give you a crime-free week. And I'm like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that. Wow. <laughs> it's wow. a virtually impossible task. But five years later, we did it. We actually delivered a crime-free week, and we've done it by a complete switch around to traditional policing. So I had to get the backing of my sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, superintendent, chief superintendent, who had to give a little, you know, assistant commissioner, we've got this bloke who thinks he can do this. And it was all about working, with, working in partnerships. And then in 1997, I'd been on the beat about two years, not two, three years, um, Labour come to power. Well, well, by then, I'd been writing this newsletter and my newsletter went out to three and a half thousand flats. Every single flat got it within three hours. I had a, a delivery team of people. So every four weeks, everybody got the same information from the police, from the same source, no media spin, no rumors and gossip. It was direct information. And I used to copy in all the local politicians. We had Tessa Jow, Harriet Harman, Simon Hughes, all left of center and all, well, Simon's liberal, but the others are Labour. But the other two were also went on to become cabinet members. Well, I used to copy them all into my newsletters, let them know what was going on on the beat, didn't I? 
So when Blair, and we were making significant crime reduction stuff. And so when Blair come in, they chose the Earlsbury State as his backdrop for, you know, the, the, the will to win and the forgotten people speech, his very first speech. And that was yeah. me standing next to him. Yeah. There's the, the picture here on the balcony. So well, I used to ride on that. I, I used to use that tool to get funding for the youth centres. We, we started the very, the very, very first Sure Start project was on the Aylesbury estate. And it come from funding from, from basically me bullying people to get funding to do things for people and saying, well, I know Tony Blair and I'm going to write to him. Yeah. So yeah. I actually used that experience for the good. But what it also taught me was, because this is the introduction, eh? the bill used to film on that estate. And it was one of the places they used as the Jasmine Allen. It's when I first met Brian Bilgori, one of the production uh, location managers. That's right, yeah. So he was very good. He, he used to make sure that the, the police officers were, were, I'm not going to use the word kept sweet, but there was always a, a sense that they would look after the police officer if the police officer was going to object to them filming or to thank them kindly. And I, I didn't do all of that. You, you'd done the right thing or you didn't. That's how I work. Uh, this, is, this is how all locations work. What happened was I went to a tenants meet and I was told the bill were going to be filming. I said, that's right. And they go, no, it ain't. Every time they come up here, they bloody well trash the walkways. They make it all dirty just to give it the visual effect. Now, this place has got miles of walkways. And, you know, when a light goes out on the Aylesbury, the council put it back. When there's rubbish drop, it gets picked up. It's the poorest ward in London, but it's one of the cleanest. And there was a sense of pride that was instilled through the council. It was all 98% council flats, council owned, yes? So big transient population. And it was an edu a constant education of the, of the masses there. So the housing manager said, we can't do nothing about it because some of them are leaseholders and the locations people have worked out who, where the leaseholders are and they pay them 100 quid just to go and hook up for the electricity. So if they need electricity or use a kitchen for two hours filming for a couple of scenes, well, they've got the residents there. We'll take 100 quid easy, wouldn't they? They'll bypass that stuff. Bollocks, how do I do this? So I wrote to the leader of the council and I said, unless the bill tidy up their act and start doing some decent storylines, as in they're all decent storylines, but I want them to reflect the positive stuff that we're doing, getting the gangs of Peckham to plant flowers for old people. It was literally as raw as that. It was a complete reversal of what we'd normally be doing as police officers, hands in pockets up against the wall. We were getting them engaged with the elders in the community to make the community better, planting hanging baskets, planting community orchards on a housing estate in South East London. The bill, the bill didn't want to do those sort of stories, did they? So I, I, so I kicked them off the Aylesbury estate. I ended up doing, um, had a good team around me, we had the community wardens, and they, they were like mini home beat officers. They were the predecessors of um, PCSOs. So I had a team of them, and we, we, we were good on that estate. Anyway, we got a crime-free week after five or six years. It completely zero crime. It sounds a bit rough, but it was a sort of area where we can take a lot of pride that one year we only had one murder. So and this was just one little you know, 12-acre site of London just south of the Elephant and Castle. It's a very densely populated area. But we, we were quite proud of our achievements. It was like a, a it wasn't a crime-free zone, but we achieved as much as we reasonably could. So I was then moved onto the other side of the road on the Brandon estate where the bill had been filming since I'd kicked them off. <laughs> and, and Brian Bill Gorey, it was like, oh, 
PC Holland, <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> so, it was like, okay, so we sat down with the housing officer and with the team from the bill. And I said, yeah, I've got my demands. If you want to film here, I'm not going to fight you. There's a different area. It's a different environment. And there's lots of residents associations. They can stand up for themselves. On the Aylesbury, they couldn't and they needed people like me. But I'm not going to support your application for any filming or road closures unless I get the following. Instead of £100 to the tenants, I want £100 to the tenants association for the youth centres. I also want an extra couple of actors when they're not filming. Instead of sitting around, I want them down at the youth centre getting their picture taken with the kids in uniform if needs be. And I'll authorise that. I'll get that authority if you're aware in a public place. And get your picture taken with the kids for the youth centres, um, in the schools, in the youth clubs, at the basketball hall. The kids on the estate, the, the, the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds, the ones whose brothers were involved in the gang culture and they were susceptible to, they associated the people they saw with TV actors, but they were all associated to police officers. Yeah, I can imagine. So it was almost like creating an omnipresence by sending actors out as police officers that they associated to. And I'll tell you, it helped me break so many barriers on that particular estate. Now, that particular estate was where we had the kids' company that was in the news recently. Camilla Betjemangela, the charity that used to take all the kids in. Um, big, big, and it was, she was accused of, of literally um, harboring gangs and, and, and finance. It, she wasn't. It was all political why it was closed down. But this was right in the heart of Camberwell and Walworth on my beat. And, and having access to, to, to characters in the bill, to send into schools, to send into the youth centres, it, it helped me break down the barriers that I needed. Well, I was seen as a good bloke because I knew all these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I let, I let them think that. <laughs> Why wouldn't <laughs> I not? Absolutely. And, but then they've got, you can't undo a visual imprint. And the visual imprint was of police officers in their youth centre. Yeah. So it's, the, yeah. the association is now there. Do you know what I mean? And it was the, it was the little tiny things like that. And people like me would use our experiences to see if we could influence change locally. And other guys used to do this as well. I can't remember who it was, but there were some great script writers. And I spent half a day with, with one once on the rooftop, the 12th story of one of the blocks of flats. And they just wanted to ask questions like this and let me talk. And, but we were looking at the area and they were saying, well, what about that area? What about the garages? What happens here? What happens there? And we could tell them without data protection, tell them the sorts of incidents, the type of policing, the type of... So we could influence some of the stories. And I'm sure I didn't see it, but I was, I was, we talked and talked and talked for hours about a Jasmine Allen in Bloom competition. There was one where Reg really got involved in the community and he wanted to do a gardening project for someone. And that story came from what I was doing on the Aylesbury estate, where I got the awards um, for doing the Aylesbury in Bloom. I was getting the gangs of kids to plant things for the old people. So there was little storylines that used to be dropped into things like EastEnders and The Bill and Casualty from not just your advisors that you had, but they used to go out and do some real outreach with us. For, for those of us that were open to, to talking about these things. But yeah, the situations I dealt with, it, it was, to me, when, it first, when I first joined the police, it was the most real police drama, the most real, it was the most real to life of the situations as well. Mm. And it's such a pity that we don't have one like that now. 
you know, because those kind of role models dramatise role models. They, they, do- yes. And it was that thing, I, I was given that, you know, Dixon and Doc Green has got nothing on PC Kevin Holland, the intro to one of the TV programmes I did in the 90s. Okay, I can see that. You know, all of a sudden, I'm Dixon on Doc Green with ster- on steroids. <laughs> that was how it was. Which, if older people can relate to that, then you don't mind that mantle. You do need good drama in life. We, we've got it at the moment through, um, oh, Line of Duty. Is it Line, Line of Duty? Duty. Yeah. Which, which has been really good. But that, again, it's a continuation story. You want to see real-life nuts and bolts policing on the street. You have a Juliet Bravo of the world done it. Dixon done it. The Bill done it I, I don't know why it stopped why the bill stopped the public have got an appetite i mean obviously we've got multi-channel viewing now and then the public have now got the appetite there's lots of cops with cameras programs and crime fighters um and i done my tv programs that you might have seen on the youtube and there was only two of them on youtube there was actually four of them the other two were on vhs and i can't bloody well find them anywhere but they go back to 95 and 96 when i first done them and it was when i was on my push bike cycling around um, the, the streets of South East London, Ch- chasing, chasing gangs on a push bike. That was, that was a game changer, that was. We had big, long walkways on these housing estates, massive, you know, 400 yards long, multi-level. I could get everywhere. Yeah. They didn't know what hit them. PC Holland was <laughs> up their ass like they'd never known before when I got my push bike. I would walk on a walkway, a whistle would go up, and everyone would disappear. And as soon as I got my push bike, they didn't know which way to look. It was brilliant. I could even do all the steps... 12 stories, which is 24 flights of stairs, down in about 45 seconds on a push bike, all the way down the stairwells. It must have been rewarding for you when you saw people turn a new leaf or actually yeah, listen. You, you, you meet, when you're a police officer, apart from just bimbling down the street and talking to people, you, you actually meet people sometimes when they're at a crossroads in their life. They've made a decision, they've chosen a path or they've committed an, a- an action, which is construed as a crime or misdemeanor, and we come into contact. It's at that point where you want to divert them off. Yeah, you've got to try and break that cycle. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, in the area where I was at the time when I was there, most kids under the age of 16 had never been more than three miles from where they lived. So there's, there's the first thing. Now, they might come from second or third generation of welfare support payments. Where's the oh, There was kids in the area where I police where the bill filmed. Actually, had a row with one of the dealers at the time when they were filming on um, on Donington Grove Estate. This this lad who was a dealer would nicked him a few times and subsequently he was going, "That's not how you bloody well do. It. That's not how the police do it round here." And he's shouting across, and the director's getting pissed off, and the second director shouting at the third director to speak to the runner to tell the police officer to. Because they've all got yeah. their chain of command, haven't they? Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> getting the youth diversion. So becoming a patron of the boxing gym, becoming a patron of the, you know, getting involved as a volunteer, but sort of as a policeman, but sort of in my own time. Because all of these clubs are local to where I live. I go past on a bus. You know, you, you're not always working. You're not always at home. Everyone needs a hobby. So I got involved in football, in boxing, and then get your kids involved, all the kids off the street, get them involved. And that's proper youth diversion. Going into a school, I mean, I used to have a thing about schools. It's wrong. It's criminal for a police officer to walk past the school. Criminal. Bloody well, walk through it. There's the front door. There's the back door. Hello. Hello. Just walk through it. Let them see you every day. Police officers, 
get out of their, they should be out of their car at quarter to nine every morning. They should be standing on a front gate of a school. If you've got 12 schools, do one every day for three weeks. Yeah. Let people see you as a regular and crime disappears. You just create an omnipresence. And it was easy in those areas. And then when we had things like the bill filming, you had four days sometimes of 30 police officers. Yeah. The takeover yeah. of the giraffe pub, that, or what was the giraffe pub down in, in uh, Manor Place, down the old baths, that was, that was where they filmed lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, and two smoking guns, and um, Snatch. Yeah. It, it, there's a little parade of shops and a pub there, and it was on my beat. And all of the, so one day would be with, um, I don't know, Inspector Monroe, who, again, Inspector Monroe, he was a regular at Dulwich Hamlet Football Club. He used to play squash there, where I was vice chairman and community support officer so i used to get colin tarrant to come and sit in the boardroom of a match day as our guest to hand out trophies to the kids where we were running competitions on the pitch for the i don't know it could be the police community um penalty shootout competition that i was organizing oh, no. and would get someone like colin tarrant to come along or duncan Goodshoe or um michael palin because they all used the health club in east dulwich where the football club was so we just tapped into it yeah. So you were always yeah. using your connections, especially the actors. You were always using them to help you do your job. Yeah. It's a cute way of working. It was, I mean, plus the fact it made my life easy, I'll be honest. <laughs> my huge thanks to Kevin for his time and sharing his memories. There's lots more gold dust to come in parts two and three. In the meantime, you can follow the great man on Twitter at The Solar Shed, and you can find his book on Amazon called A Pig in Shit. Kevin is also a supporter of the Justice for Yvonne Fletcher campaign, which he'll be talking about in part three, but if you'd like to read more and support before then, you can do so on crowdjustice.com. Here's Ben Payton with the closing credits for our co-producer and executive producers of The Bill podcast. If you'd like to add your name to these credits, join the investigation on patreon.com forward slash The Bill podcast. Hello, this is Ben Payton and you have been listening to The Bill podcast. Produced and presented by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Dan Evans, Sarah Kuiper and Alex Mockler. Executive produced by Glenn Allen. Ben Ashmore, Daniel Christopher, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Paul Dunn, George Fairbrother, Stuart Gibbon, Erin Gordon, Luke Hegarty, Edward Kellett, James Ladane, Stuart and Jen Morris, Claire Norbury, Justin Pitt, Tom Sherrington, Patrick Stratford, Sarah Went and Michael Weil. Brought to you in association with GeorgeFairbrother.com and Misty Moon Events. If you're interested in reading about the making of the first three series of The Bill, signed copies of Oliver Crocker's book, Witness Statements, are available from devonfirebooks.com.